Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to another programmable episode of Software Gone Wild. You might remember that we talked about software-defined internet exchanges and all sorts of other interesting things with Laurent Van Bever a long while ago, and we made it a habit to sit down whenever we both happen to be in Zurich at the same time, which, when the stars align, happen as often as solar eclipses in Europe, which means like every three to four years or so. And the last time we were having a cup of coffee together, he was mentioning all the interesting work they are doing with programmable pipelines and in particular with P4. So I said, well, we definitely have to record a podcast on it. And it took us another half a year to schedule everything and so on. Finally, it's happening. So welcome, Laurent. Welcome back. How's life these days? Thanks, Ivan. Life is good. I'm happy to be here back. As you said, it was tough to uh, schedule it, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to explain the hopefully cool things we're doing here. Life is good, yes. And as always, I have people with me to keep me honest and ask all the questions that I forget asking. Chris Young and Nick Boraglio, welcome back. Great to be here. Great to be here. And Nick, what's that tired voice of yours? That was enthusiasm right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's early. Okay. So without going into the details of what's troubling you these days, Laurent, how did you guys, and you work at ETH as a professor in the networking department, right? Yeah, correct. So I understand why you guys would be interested in SDN and OpenFlow and programmable thing is, but how did you get interested in programmable pipelines, programmable hardware? Why would that matter? Yeah, so it, it was kind of like the continuity of, as you said, like this, um, the first generation, let's say, of SDN, right? That was probably embodied by the OpenFlow protocol that enabled you to, uh, let's say, to program the forwarding state in an easy manner using a standardized interface. So we started with this and to play with that um, API. But of course, I mean, we realized that we were limited because even though we could program in an easy manner what uh, the forwarding table uh, looks like and contain, we couldn't change how the device actually forward traffic. It was still like the packet enters, you match on some fields, and then the packet exits according to the next step that you uh, that you provision. The reason why we're really interested here is that now we kind of like full programmability if you want. So we can, of course, program the control plane. We can now also program the DAP plane. So what does it mean is that the new generation of, of uh, programmable devices, they actually offer you the, the ability to change the way a switch forwards packet and, and changing this way in a programmable manner. So, um, so this, this P4 language you mentioned initially, it's kind of a programming language to define how does a switch forward traffic. And the interesting bit here, I think, is of course, you can do normal IP forwarding or like this Mac-based forwarding. So you can reproduce an Ethernet switch, you can reproduce an IP router easily, but you can also define, for instance, new protocol. So you can define new header, for instance, that would be relevant in your environment and that would perhaps be set, let's say, at the, at the hand host part. And then you can define new behavior that would uh, would be attached to this header uh, that would be carried over by the packets. And you can program these behaviors. You can encode this in P4, and you can compile this program, and then you can load that program into your switch, and then your switch would actually forward your traffic according to your behavior at, well, in if you have, like, hardware equipment, up to terabits per second in the backplane. And so this kind of, like, uh, what was really interesting to us, I think, is the fact that this flexibility that you get uh, in being able to redefine your pipeline did not come at the expense of, of performance. So you can still like forward at line rate and still be flexible. And that was actually very enticing for us to do. And so we started to, to play with the technology and to play with the language and started to build like a couple of applications on top of that existing one just to get started. 
And then also, as we were like more and more like uh, getting into it, we started to develop new features, I think, that you cannot really do today. Yeah, and I think what is really enabling these new features, right, uh, is like the ability now that we have to also maintain state. So I was I was telling you that with P4, you can reprogram what the switch is doing as it forwards your packet from the input port to the output port. What is actually quite nice is that you can maintain state as well. And you can, of course, define how that state should be maintained and the kind of computation that defines the state in the first place. And what is really cool now is indeed that now you can, for instance, maintain statistics about your, your traffic. So you have your packets that enter your switch. You can compute statistics, perhaps, for instance, maintain, I don't know, an average of the inter-packet arrival time. And then you can adapt, let's say, the way you forward the traffic according to that average. And that's just an example that I just made up, for instance. But that's one concrete example of something you can decide to do with your equipment. And if you are not happy, you can actually change the program and tomorrow your switch is doing something else. And so again, like to answer your question, I think this flexibility is really nice, certainly for us researcher, but I would imagine as well for the uh, for your audience normally to actually be able to change perhaps the way the network works, to remove what you don't need, right? I think there is a lot in the vendor equipments that uh, not everybody needs and you can actually just target really your equipments for your applications. And so that is also, I think, an interesting point. So um, I guess that's a long answer, but that's kind of like, yeah, I, I guess the main things that got us interested into the technology in the first place. So before we go into the details, and I already have like 10 different questions I want to ask you, you mentioned you already got to the point where you have some interesting, exciting applications for P4-based packet forwarding. So what would they be? Yes. I mean, just to give you a few examples, right, of the bat, but things we have been building recently, for instance, involve detecting problems in the network. So it could be, for instance, uh, failures directly in the DAPLIN. So you might think, okay, this is what BFD is doing. Why is it new? Why is it interesting? So the interesting bit is that you can actually use the DAPLIN or to look at, let's say, how traffic is behaving, and you can use that to detect remote failures. So, for instance, if you are an ISP and you are using BGP, of course, with your neighbors to learn some um, some IP prefixes, and okay, BGP does this thing, picks the best route, and then at some point there is a problem along the path between you and the destination. Maybe the destination is far away from you. So the way you would actually react today to this kind of failure is by waiting for BGP to actually send you a withdrawal, for instance, and then your routers will react perhaps quickly. But the time it takes for these updates to reach your network might be very long. And we actually measure it. Sometimes it is in the, on the order of a minute. But if you think about it, right, if you if there is a failure alongside the pass, of course, packets will be dropped, right? And uh, since today still most of the traffic is TCP-based, you will see retransmission that will be regenerated after the, the drops. So if you can actually look at the traffic and look at the evolution of the retransmission over time, you can actually detect before BGP that there is an issue in your data plane. And what is going on there is that uh, we actually built uh, this as a P4 application uh, that is keeping track of uh, statistics of like TCP retransmission at line rate, really as the traffic is moving on. And that is actually able to detect like failure remotely. And the cool thing now is that we can actually do on the order of, let's say, one-second convergence, not only for, like, internal failure, like you would do with BFD and fast reroute mechanism, but also for external ones. And that is something I think that would be interesting to, uh, I don't know, like a cloud provider, let's say, or like a Netflix that would actually care about being able to, uh, to figure out that there is a problem on the pass before the slow control plane is telling that there is one. So that's one which is very recent that we did. And another one that relates a little bit to that is also trying to improve BFD in the first place. So that's more for local failures now. So the first one I mentioned was for remote failures by looking at TCP signals. We're also looking at how we can improve BFD for local failures. And then the idea is a little bit that I mean, BFD is great, but I mean, it's uh, it's kind of like very basic, right? You send hello, hello packets. And then if you haven't received, let's say, K hello packets, where K is often three, then you say to the control plane that there is a problem. So a few issues there is, for instance, that you don't really use real traffic for the BFD detection. You use these uh, probes 
So what can happen, and that actually happens a lot in the centers, for instance, you can have what is called like a grave failure. So these are really nasty failures in which you have like, for instance, some random bit flips in your forwarding table that kind of like make some entries corrupted. And detecting those is very hard usually. I mean, you, you can use NetFlow or SFlow to try to get them, but it's very tough. So here the idea is you can really use the real traffic as a kind of acknowledgement if you want. And so you can have like these switches to actually send like acts to each other based on real traffic. So it's a little bit kind of like moving part of TCP down to the data plane if you want. But it's more like replacing the normal BFD probes by actual traffic and then enable the device to detect gray failure at BFD speed. So in a few milliseconds. And of course, then you can, you can alert the control plane that there is an issue. So this is, I think, like two examples of things that are interesting to do at the, uh, it's a convergence level where you want to detect events very fast. And the event in this case is a failure. Other examples that are on that topic would be, for instance, detecting congestion very fast as well. And one cool thing, really cool thing, I think, that enables a lot of nice application is, for instance, to be able to monitor in real time the uh, queue occupancy of your devices. And so that's also something which is very cool. And so as the traffic is traversing your network, you can record, for instance, in the packet header, the maximum occupancy that it, uh, each packet uh, saw alongside the pass. So you can imagine that by knowing this precisely on a per-packet basis, you can then, for instance, do congestion aware routing in, in your network, or so detect, like, let's say, hotspot and this kind of thing. Again, this is something that you, I guess, would be able to detect with NetFlow or SFlow, but that would be much harder. I mean, you would need to work much more in order to, to detect that. So I can continue, if you want me to, by saying more applications, or perhaps you have questions. I think there's a whole lot to deconstruct there. Yeah. Um, let's start with the hardware stuff. I think you had a question about that, Chris. Well, I think the three of us are probably okay with hardware architecture, but I have to assume there's a large part of the audience that doesn't understand what a static pipeline looked like previously and why a flexible pipeline and a programmable pipeline is a good thing. So can you talk briefly about where we were and why this is important to us? What were some of the effects of having a static pipeline? Yes. So I think like, so by static pipeline, it's being more like, let's say a fixed function line card. So you, you kind of like buy a line card from your preferred vendor. You put that in your router and that line card has a fixed set of functions. So probably does Ethernet, IP based forwarding, perhaps some route maps, this kind of like perhaps some BFD as well. So the set of functions that you have is kind of like set in stone. It's done by the hardware. And that actually is very hard to, uh, to update, right? I mean, you can update the software in your router, of course. You can have like new release of the operating system as much as you want. But updating what is the line card doing, this you cannot really do, right? You have to change the line card itself. And so that's obviously not great. So this intuition of what a programmable line card is, is that when you buy the line card, right, and you install it in your device, or you buy a device which is programmable in the first place, is that the line card doesn't do anything what the line card is said to be protocol independent. So what the line card enables you to do, though, is to actually define what it should do with the packet that it receives between the input port and the output port. And the way it is structured is actually, of course, similar to what is done today, right? It's not like this has completely changed. So the way it works is that you have kind of a parsing phase that you can program. So the parsing, the role of the parsing phase is to extract headers from the packet. And of course, if you want, for instance, to do Ethernet-based uh, forwarding and IP-based forwarding, perhaps looking also at transport port, you would extract these fields from the header. And that would be phase one, if you want, in your programmable pipeline. And then phase two consists in like taking these headers that you have extracted and then sending them through a sequence of match action tables. And the content of these tables can again be programmed either by the control plane or by the line card itself, according to the, the logic that you define. And so things that you can do, for instance, of course, you can decrease the TTL, you can change the destination IP, you can change the source IP, you can add a new header if you want to do encapsulation, for instance. You can pop uh, MPLS label if you want to do MPLS-based forwarding. You can adapt the next stop if you want to do convergence. So you can do all these things in this kind of like sequence of match action tables. And of course, different hardware will give you different amount of tables. And 
They will also constrain you on the operations you can do in the table. That like, is still at work dependent. So you have like a parser, a sequence of match action tables that are reprogrammable as well. And then at the, at the very end, of course, you want to reconstruct the packet, right? So you have like the deparser, which is usually a mirror of the parser. And then what you do is that you kind of like take all the headers that you parsed initially, plus the one that you want to add to the packet, and then you smoosh them down together into a new packet. You take the payload, append it at the end, update the checksum, and then you send that on the wire to the next stop. And so really what it gives you is the ability to tomorrow, for instance, if you want a new feature, like, I don't know, like MPLS fast reroute, or let's say uh, MPLS, let's say you want to do MPLS based VPN, right? So for that, you would need your line card to support MPLS labels, for instance, right? And to forward based on those. So perhaps your current line card doesn't, right? And today you will need to buy a new one. And so now if your network or if your switch is reprogrammable, you can actually just update the program. And so, so I think this flexibility is beneficial. Now, of course, you can just do whatever you're doing today. You can do it with a programmable switch. So if you want, I don't think you lose anything with respect to what you have now you just gain flexibility. Of course, somebody has to write a program, right? So it could be the operator, it could be someone else, it could be the vendor, or it could be a third party, right? So I guess the ecosystem might also benefit from having more parties than just your vendor and yourself that could also provide these programs. So I hope I answer your question more or less, but this is what I see as the big change with respect to what we have today in an existing network. So to break that down a little bit, because there's a lot in that, as well. A couple things. One, so to give this an analogy to what's available today, right? You buy a piece of equipment, like you said, a line card or a stackable or whatever, and it comes with an ASIC, which has whatever the vendor has in their software, in theory, is baked into the hardware so that when you type your commands, it's able to speak to the hardware directly and offload any of those complicated actions from, you know, what is likely an anemic CPU to a piece of hardware that's purpose-built to perform those actions. Within P4, the purpose-built hardware is significantly more flexible and it allows you to basically build whatever the, what we call pipelines are or the static hardware support for whatever the protocol is that you want to run on top of that hardware. And it's not, and it's completely protocol independent, right? It doesn't care if it's IP, you know, Ethernet, NDN, you know, some other experimental protocol, MPLS, whatever, it allows you to sort of configure that the way you want to, as the vendor does for most existing hardware platforms. The closest thing I think people have seen to this, you know, to give a good analogy of the differences, right, is anybody as old as as us and has been doing this for a while will remember when IPv6 was not supported in hardware, right? So you Mm -hmm. configure IPv4 and it did all the things, and then you try to do IPv6 and it punted everything into the CPU, Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the closest thing I think we've seen to programmable pipelines are some of the FPGA-based hardware yeah. that allow you to sort of program new gate arrays and things like that as the protocols change a little bit. But even that is not even as close to as flexible as a, a P4 target device. And I think there's a more recent example. So one of the other things with pipelines is there is a definite order of operations in most normal switches, non-programmable switches. So I think a lot of people have probably seen the, oh, hey, you want to route VXLAN? Yeah, I'm sorry, you can't do that because yep. that's after the layer three lookup, right? So that layer three match action happens before VXLAN, which is running on top of that, which resulted in, in thankfully for the vendors of the world, forcing everybody to buy new equipment. That wouldn't have happened with P4. Or VXLAN actually ran out of pipeline stages because you had to do so many lookups to route VXLAN. So even if you would have a programmable hardware and it wouldn't have enough stages in the pipeline to want to do what you want to do, you would be stuck anyway. Yeah, that is true, right? So you do this program, right? You compile it down to the hardware. So if the program compiles and is loaded by the hardware, you get the guarantee that the program will run at line rate. But now you're very right, Ivan, that there is now like many limitations and constraints, right? Because this runs in an ASIC, right? It's reprogrammable, but it's still an ASIC and it's a constrained environment. So you have a number of stages. And if the program that you want to do requires more, then you will have to innovate, let's say, and be creative if you really want to do the same program or you would have to make some trade-off somewhere. 
So clearly, for instance, you cannot start parsing up to, I don't know, 1,000 bytes into the packet because that's very costly to do, right? And usually the bits that matter are the very beginning. So there are all these constraints that one needs to be aware of. And that's, and it's very true that you are kind of like doing the job of the vendor, right? Because that's what, I don't know, Cisco or Juniper would do for you. So yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. So now you, you have to do this yourself. But again, I don't think that programmable uh, data planes necessarily imply that operator need to do that. They can be somebody else. The thing that you can change it tomorrow, right? And if you want to do something different tomorrow, you want to support VXLAN, and it is not like at the 12th layer in the packet, you can do it. If you want to support MPLS tomorrow, you can do it. If you want to support IPv6, you can as well. IPv5 or IPv10, no problem. Because what the switch does is just a bit string. I'm extracting some pieces of the bit string. I'm matching on that. I'm doing stuff with the match. And then I'm forwarding this thing out. So it's really like completely protocol independent, as you guys said. I think it's nice. And indeed, I think I really like the example of the IPv4, IPv6, the fast passing slow path, because that's something that wouldn't happen anymore. Should we have this widely deployed in the networks? Yeah, I mean, I can see a handful of use cases for this, both in the research world, which is sort of where I sit, and then also in the production realm where you need very specific functions in your network and you can, and they're static, right? And they're not that hard to change. So, you know, they're not that often to change, but, you know, doing things like figuring out how to implement protocols that are not IP, like NDN, for example, in hardware is much easier when you can actually program the pipelines yourself. Now, you know, I'm air quoting that because programming is difficult, but you know, it's possible, whereas before you basically have to go beg a vendor to do it for you. And in my experience with P4, you know, there's a couple of different mechanisms and paths you can travel down when you want to use it, right? You can buy a target. The listeners may or may not know, you know, the destination for the P4 programming language is called a target. And the target can be anything. Oftentimes you'll hear about like a P4 switch, right? Because that's what most of us are familiar with. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be an Ethernet card or any number of other things. The target can be vendor provided, right? And the vendor, you give them, you can give them your criteria and for a fee or if you're working with them, they'll build those pipelines for you, right? So that's a possibility. There's also pretty good and well-documented programming language that and compilers that you can use to build this yourself. And the documentation is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it's possible to do those things, you know, to research new protocols and or to build, you know, a purpose built piece of equipment for, you know, an internet exchange or a security appliance or whatever you want to end up doing with it. Okay, but if we stay on planet Earth, all the applications you mentioned were actually add on to existing layer two, layer three forwarding functionality. Mm hmm. And if I understand correctly, when you buy a switch that is P4 capable, you get a piece of hardware that can do anything, but it doesn't do anything out of the box. Correct. So someone has to program the basics, the boring basic stuff like, oh, let's extract the MAC addresses. Let's do the MAC table lookup. Let's see if this is my MAC address. Oh, gee, it is. So I have to extract my IP address and so on and so on and so on. Are there already libraries of this boring thing is that you could take and just add the sexy stuff? Or do you have to start from scratch and reinvent all the wheels that have already been invented? So somewhere in the middle, right? So you, you um, clearly there are already like some P4 code out there, which is, for instance, I'm the most famous one is called switch.p4. And what this P4 program is doing is essentially giving you like all the functionalities of a normal Ethernet switch. So this is already there. It's actually one of the largest P4 program, I think, that exists so far. And it is maintained by the community as an open source uh, version. It's on GitHub. You can download it. You can start from it. Now, I mean, P4 is young language. The community is growing, right? And uh, there are more and more people looking at it, uh, also inside vendors. But it's still something new, something fresh. So, of course, you will not have like 10 years of like polishing of the code and like a lot of uh, plug and play applications you can just take out. And there is no app store if you want for P4 applications. So this is also why it is fresh, right? And, uh, and still very young. 
I think indeed before you put that in production, you would need to ask yourself like, okay, who is going to write the code? And uh, I mean, all the, this question about maintenance and this kind of thing would need to, uh, to be thought through as well. So um, it's probably not for everybody at, at, at this moment. But of course, the, I think the hope is that there will be an entire ecosystem that will emerge from that, right? And that there will be entities that will actually do that job for you if you cannot do it yourself. But uh, short answer, yes, they are like the boring things are done. But if you want not so boring things, then you will probably have to do them yourself. Yeah, of course. But that's the fun part, right? That's what I think as a researcher is the fun part, right? As an operator willing to maintain 99.999% uptime, it's probably the frightening part. Because if you do it yourself, you have to call yourself, right? If there is an issue. So, as I said, with great powers come great responsibilities. And that's the same here, right? It's not only in the DevOps uh, community, it's also here not in the NetOps community. But I think it is a good thing. I mean, clearly the move is important. Now, of course, it will depend on how the community develops, right? That, of course, I don't know. So, to rephrase what you just said, we are giving you all the rope you need to hang yourself. Yeah, we give you a scope so that you you can even like, or a map of where they are. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's a classical argument. I, I get that a lot, right? That with the more flexible the network become, of course, the more ways you have to kill it. But still, as you know, right? I'm not really buying the argument because I think uh, I think we should not like stop like innovation and flexible network just because they can be killed more easily. Of course, what we should do is together with the flexibility should come, let's say. A toolkit, right, that come with it, for instance, to do verification or like a very good IDE that would come with it. So I think there is an ecosystem that needs to be developed in order for trying to avoid this fallacy that you said that if you can actually program your thing, you will do it wrong, right? So, so the hope is that one can also verify these things and can really ensure, like stamp it, that uh, this is actually correct and does what you want. Of course, yeah, that's the same problem as in software. Now you end up with like um, a big piece of code. You need to make sure it does what you want. Yeah, I think if you've got P4-capable switches, please don't test them in production. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, you never do that, right? You would first test it. Uh, but that's a cool thing with P4 as well. I mean, just to jump on, on this, right? You uh, Because it's, it's also target independent, right? You can first compile it down to a, to a virtual platform. You can test it in a virtual environment very easily. And then you can, uh, you can combine it down for like a hardware platform. And then you can, uh, you can start testing it in the lab like you would do today. And, and then you would deploy it, right? So that you can, of course, do all these things. And the tool chain is already there to do like the software based emulation of, of the P4 program is already there. So that, that is actually quite nice already. But you're right. Of course, don't put that directly in production without testing it thoroughly. And that's obvious. Oh, I'm kind of curious. What hardware are you running this on? And obviously, like Barefoot is that where kind of P4 came out of that company and those academic work associated with the people running Barefoot. But I've seen like Intel has P4 interpreter on some of their NICs maybe. And there was another vendor. I don't remember exactly who it was that's kind of jumped on. Cisco? Arista has a P4-like offering. And then you've got Ethernet cards like Netronome and some other options out there that are you know capable of being host targets. And then uh, NovaFlow has a P4 switch as well. Yeah, I think you guys cite all of them already, yes. We have the chance of having uh, some barefoot switch switches here in the lab. So we, we have been playing with them and we have been able to, to run our application on them at line rate. We also have some, uh, I mean, FPGA was mentioned before. We actually have this NetFPGA board on which you can also load it. You can load like a P4, basically like you can make it P4 compatible if you want. And so we're also using this in, in our lab. As you said, we're academics. That's suit us well, because what we want is to show that we can actually run it a hardware target, right? It could be kind of like any hardware target, and we happen to have well, picked this one. But the market is also developing, as you guys said. There are like more and more offering, and that's also nice. Um, all for like more offering at, at that level. I was to say, as someone that sort of straddles the line between research and production, to me it feels like having worked on some P4 projects and hardware, it feels like the likelihood of a operational network engineering or, you know, a production network writing their own P4 code to push down into, you know, hardware that they've got in the field that's passing transiting production traffic. I think the likelihood of that is fairly low, right? I think that where the value here is 
you know, the vendor-provided pipelines or even a third-party market for building pipelines that get pushed down into P4-compatible hardware. I think there's a lot of likelihood for that being at least a thing, not successful. But, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say typical network engineer isn't going to say, oh, I don't have support for VXLAN. Hold on, let me go and write that for you and then push it out into production. I think you're going to have to have a pretty heavy-duty development team to handle that from the general point of view. But I do think that there is a likelihood that we'll see some third-party and also vendor-provided pipeline farms that start to pop up as this becomes a little more popular. Yeah, I wanted to ask like adjacent question to this one. We all know that FPGAs can be programmed, and we also know that it's pretty hard to do and requires some pretty special skills. So how hard is it to program in P4? Well, I think it's actually, it's easier to program than an FPGA. Uh, so you don't need very local VHDN, right? P4 is actually a language which is pretty close to C, if you think about it, with like some things that are stripped off. So for instance, loops uh, you don't have. You cannot do things like, I don't know, division. You cannot do, I don't know, floating point computation because it has to run in hardware. Think of it as a very, very basic C with kind of like a structure which is imposed, right? Because you have like this parser that you need to implement plus this control flow through this uh, match action tables plus the parser. So think of it as a kind of like structured C with like some of the functionalities that are stripped away. So I would argue that it's much easier to program in this than in VHDL or Verilog. And uh, it's more approachable. So now I definitely understand that this is probably not something that all the network operators want to do. And I think it's okay, right? I think they don't have to do it, right? As we said, perhaps a third party can do it. Also, I think P4 is kind of like the... Think of it as kind of an x86, right, to program a pipeline, right? It's uh, Now we have it, right? And um, we had, like, assembly initially. And then we can develop, like, higher-level languages on top of it as well, right? So there is also a hope that community will not stop at P4 and we develop, like, higher-level abstraction on top of it to the point, perhaps, that one day, actually, a network operator could use one of these higher-level languages to program its airplane more easily. So it's very, again, very young ecosystem. So, of course, like when comparing it where with a very established one, like what you would have with C or C++, there are like big differences there. But the hope is that down the line, these differences will diminish. But clearly, I agree with what you guys said. Like, uh, I don't think it's for the network operators, but I think the fact that they can do it if they want, and if they're not happy with the current behavior, they can actually get a third party to implement something for them probably more easily than just the vendor, right? If they are a small network, I think that's a very big gain already with all that it entails here. Now to go totally academic, as you mentioned that this language is much simpler than, let's say, C, so it doesn't have loops and so on and so on. Is it possible to formally validate that your program is doing what you expect to be doing and not hitting the halting problem, for example? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, I mean, P4 is, well, supposedly not Turing complete. So I'm pretty sure you can uh, you can do crazy things, though, by stacking the network together in order to create a loop via multiple switches that will actually give you the looping capabilities. You would need to build a Turing machine there. So I would not claim that too strongly, though. But I think it's a very good question. And yes, there has been like very recent work at the, the biggest conference in our field in networking there have been multiple papers now trying to do exactly what you just said, which is to formally verify some specification that you would have about the behavior of your pipeline and then actually giving you like a stamp, yes, this specification is met by your code or no, it isn't. And the fact that it is a, a very much simplified version of C actually makes that easier to do. So, of course, I mean, one needs to understand that you have like the, the P4 code that defines the behavior of your pipeline. Of course, you still need a control plane that drives this pipeline that you have, right? And I think this was mentioned before. Today, in the router, right, the software is heavily tweaked to actually discuss with the hardware. So the way it works in P4 is that you, uh, you have your P4 code, and then as you compile it down, there is also an API which is created for your control plane to interact with the programmable pipeline. For instance, to populate the content of the forwarding table, you still need to do that, and that's still the role of the control plane. 
And so one needs not only to verify the forwarding pipeline, which is in the ASIC, right, but also how does control software interact with it, right, because it's all interconnected, obviously. And so then you end up, of course, with a normal general uh, C program, let's say, while through loop, which is like taking events from the network, recomputing routes, pushing that down. And so if you think of the entire ecosystem, then it becomes, of course, very, very hard to verify. But the forwarding pipeline itself, the answer is actually yes. It can be verified in a much easier way than a normal program. Now, moving on to a totally different topic, we were discussing different targets for a P4 program. And when we were mentioning different hardware platforms, yes, there is a Cisco switch, there's an Arista switch, but they're all using the same chipset, the barefoot chipset. So theoretically, there is Cisco Catalyst 9000, which has a programmable ASIC. There is an HP switch that has a programmable ASIC. But I don't think that any of us has heard anything about any other ASIC than a barefoot ASIC that would support P4 today. But eventually they will come and they will have different hardware capabilities. So how will P4 handle that? Yeah, that's again a very good question. P4 is supposed to be target independent. So it's protocol independent because it doesn't understand Ethernet, IP and this kind of thing. But it's also supposed to be target independent in the sense that it should compile to, I don't know, Arista, Cisco, or Barefoot. But of course, there is a limit to that target independence, I think. So it kind of all depends on how fancy is the compiler that your vendor will provide. Because of course, the different hardware will have different limitations. And if your program is going outside of the boundaries of the limitation of the hardware, of course, you cannot compile it down to it. But the thing is, if your program can almost do it, right, but you need to uh, fiddle it a little bit, right, then it's the compiler kind of duty to actually figure that out. And I think this is also like a very hard problem to do is how do you take like a target agnostic P4 program and make it target aware? No, it's often like, uh, I mean, the programmer has to be quite involved in that process. But I think this can be automated down the line and hopefully the compiler can actually do it. But this, again, is, I think, just a sign that uh, it's still fresh and uh, it's still being developed. And But I think down the line it will happen. But each vendor will then have to build their own compiler, right, that, that gives you this kind of like nice capabilities of embedding an agnostic program into the target. And this, I cannot comment on the vendor behalf. I have no money in, in that game, so I'm really like completely agnostic to that. But I would hope that they are doing it properly, yeah. So effectively, you're saying that we'll see what we have today when you have a C compiler, like GNU C compiler, for example, that has the same front end, and then it has the different backends for x86 and ARM and PowerPC and who knows what else. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's what I would hope will happen. And what, what I think is the plan as well, right? And that the P4 community really like, uh, there is the, the concept of a target, there is a concept of an architecture. And the P4 target and the P4 architecture, they come together. And that's the vendor duty to actually provide you this. And the, think of the architecture as the API to program the target at the low level API. And so that's the vendor duty. And they have to do this, right? They have to do this compiler by themselves. And uh, that comes with the hardware. And if I got you right, you were saying something along the lines of that we are very early in the stage of compiler development. So we are somewhere where C compiler was in 1970s, and we hope that eventually we'll get the optimizing compilers that will squeeze more out of available hardware and do things like reordering sequence of operations, maybe, or optimizing parsing or what have you to squeeze more out of the existing hardware that's sitting in the ASIC. That is true. So there, the way you compile the program, right, you can have a huge impact in, uh, in, for instance, the resources that the program use in the end, right? So there is a lot of optimization you can do by like kind of aligning, if you want, the code, but that would be more aligning the instructions in different stages in order to, for instance, minimize the amount of stages you require and these kind of things. So um, also to maximize the amount of parallel processing you can do. So it's a very hard problem, right? It's a research question. But the existing compiler, they can already do it, right? 
if you want, we have the dash 01 in the C compiler. We don't have the dash, I don't know, 07 as we probably have now. There is, of course, like a whole lot of optimizations that have to be developed, which I think is great for researchers like us. But again, the dash 01 still gives you something. So even though if the compiler is let quote unquote simple, because I think it is not that simple, but compared to what it could be, it is simple now. It still enables you to run fancy applications. As I said, like, for instance, the TCP-based convergence, it's, it's actually quite evolved program, and we can compile it down and run it on real hardware. But it's kind of like an example that it can be done, and hopefully in the future it will be easier to be done because the compiler will become better and better at using up the resources it has in the target. So one of the other things that you mentioned early on is the ability to pull out um, network telemetry and low-level telemetry. What's your been experience with that? Barefoot was, they've actually taken it to, I think, IETF as in-band network telemetry, some RFCs about that. What have you seen in that? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so I think it's probably one of the killer apps, right? So even if you don't really care about the programmability aspect, I think the visibility aspect is very interesting as well. So the fact that as the packet moves, you can really figure out, for instance, exactly the timestamp at when the packet enters, the timestamp when the packet leaves, the state of the queue when the packet was forwarding in the crossbar. In theory, even like the other packets that was in the buffer with the packet in the first place. So all these kind of things, right? The fact that you can extract this from the device and send that, for instance, to a controller, I think enables a lot. So one thing, of course, you can do is just you collect these things and think of it as a very, very fancy net flow that can give you like precise information. But of course, you can also use that to, for instance, do, uh, I don't know, like build control loops that will adapt to forwarding accordingly, according to what you are saying. So I think this is really enabling a lot. I mean, all the things that it enables is, for instance, to figure out exactly which rule was hit by the packet. And you can also record that, for instance. So all these things that are quite hard to do today, right? If you think of it, like if you are like running your router with, I don't know, close to 1 million routes, forwarding rules, right? Because you are running VPN plus a full uh, DFZ uh, table, IPv6, IPv4. Even knowing exactly how the router forwards the traffic is actually quite tough today. So, of course, like this visibility capability is very interesting, I think. So just being able to figure out which rule was hit, which rule is working, which rule perhaps don't see anything, right? Is actually, I think, yeah, it's a great deal. I think this is also perhaps why Barefoot is, is marketing it as a killer feature because it's really like an interesting application, right? With respect to the kind of poor visibility we have today, right? Also, what you can do actually looking at is, for instance, you can do deterministic sampling. So, for instance, if you are using NetFlow today, right, you configure NetFlow. Let's say you have to do sampling because you have too much traffic. You can do unsampled NetFlow. So you will have these sample uh, NetFlow entries that will be collected by your routers and be um, merged in the controller. I mean, the issue is that all your routers are sampling asynchronously. And, um, I mean, they do their own thing, right? Every one over 10,000 packets is sample. So you will end up in the controller with very coarse grain and very poor view of actually the your, your traffic because, I mean, it's unlikely that you will have matching observation on different uh, routers just because of the probabilities uh, vanishing small. So here, the cool thing you can do, for instance, is that you can, if you sample the packet in the first router at the ingress, you can tag it as a, this packet has been sampled at the ingress. And then at the egress router, you also sample the packets that have been tagged and you send that to your controller. So now you can have like a very cool, like, and it's very easy to do in P4. It's really like a textbook, right? You now have like exactly the time it took between the entrance and the exit point in your network. So you get like the one-way delay in your network. Of course, you have to play a little bit with the positioning of the controller and routers themselves, right? And switch themselves. But still, it is very easy to do, for instance, in P4. It would be very hard to do now, all right? People would need to start sending probes in order to measure this. It's not something that comes easily, I think. So that's kind of like an example of how you can use Int, as, uh, for instance, to, to build like uh, fancy uh, applications. What people have been using it as well is the context of data center networks. For instance, what you can do is use this capability to have destination top of the rack switch to actually accumulate, if you want, the status of the queues alongside the pass and send this back to the very first top of the rack switch at the source level. And then that top of the rack can then, for instance, switch the pass if, if, if it sees that uh, the delay is accumulating over one pass. 
So you can do this kind of like congestion-aware uh, routing, which in the context of the center is actually very nice. So all this kind of thing, I think, is, uh, is enabled by just the ability to actually get the state out and write it down in the packet and then read it at the controller and then do something with it. Yeah, so that's my experience and probably a long answer, but that's my experience so far with Int. I must say that I'm, I have not read the, uh, the ATF draft, so I cannot comment on that, but that's how we've been using it, at least all the capabilities so far. There's probably enough to get into a whole other podcast there, but the one thing I am always in around in my head is, is what is the ingestion look like? Like if, if I imagine the architecture, all that data is going to be captured at the switch. It's got to be sent somewhere. And if we're looking at, you know, 100 gig, 400 gig, 200 gig networks, the amount I've seen, some of the, the data I've read is you're able to send out a packet every 100 milliseconds. So you're able to send out a record. And I'm just imagining the size of the database, distributed database ingestion. Like, what does that look like in your experience? In a simple database, could you do it with a, in a simple influx or SQL or whatever? Or are you really, do you need a, a cluster to be able to deal with the ingestion? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it kind of like depends on what you want as a visibility. Of course, the fact that you can get the information on a per packet basis doesn't mean that you need to, right? And I think things that you can do actually, which is nice that we have been doing in our research, is to uh, actually have the switch aggregate information for you before you send that to the controller. So you can, I mean, the switch does some memory, right? So you can actually use that memory to aggregate information across multiple packets. So it's kind of like doing a little bit what NetFlow does at the flow level, right? You would aggregate multiple packets together and then you will send one flow record instead of a packet record. So certainly you can do that in the switch as well. Other things you can do, which is quite nice, is that you can also build the control loop for like controlling that. The controller can provision state in the switch at runtime. So you can have the switch, for instance, like perhaps like sending like per packet metadata to a controller. And this only has to be a few bits or bytes of information, right? So it's true, it's, it's still a lot, but it doesn't have to be like a full packet. And then depending on the load in the network, the controller can actually ask the switch to send less or to aggregate or to sample. And the cool thing is that you control because you define what the P4 program should do, you are in the driving seat there in, in choosing your aggregation method or your filtering method or sampling method, if you prefer. But you choose the knob that you want and you choose how to turn it. That's again, like the cool thing here is that you, you can adapt these things. And so I think as a researcher, we can scale more or less anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned about that. Uh, even though in production, of course, you will, you will need like a precise answer. But whether it's a cluster or filtering on the switch, I think both can work, yeah. Cool. Thank you. So there's a whole lot of stuff that we've touched on. And you mentioned a couple of times the research that you're doing and things like that. Is there a place we can find published research papers Another ongoing the things that you're working on in the space? Definitely. Probably the best would be the, my group webpage at ETH, which can be found at nsg.ee.ethz.ch. I hope we can post the, the link also on the... Uh, oh, yes, we will. Also, my homepage contains all the papers we have we have on the subjects. So it's uh, vanbeaver.eu, and we have like all the, also the presentation. Something perhaps I would like to mention is that, as Ivan said, right, I'm a professor, right? And uh, just this semester, we actually, well, we've been teaching the first lecture at ETH on programmable data planes, and we have released all the material online. On our webpage, there is a link to the GitHub to uh, basically all the slides to kind of like learn P4, how does it work, but also to uh, almost seven weeks worth of deep down exercises with solutions. So one can implement uh, like uh, multicast, TCMP, uh, layer two learning switch, uh, flow-led-based load balancing, I mean, quite a few, and also int-based applications. So we have like all this P4 code which is available publicly, that I think is a good resource to also, for the people who are interested in learning, I think this is, I hope, one of the best resources out there for now. And I would be happy if, uh, if people are interested in like also contributing to that. I think this, uh, I would also look at this if people in the audience are interested. And, uh, and again, we can, we can certainly post the, uh, the URL for the, uh, for the repository on the website. Excellent. I look forward to reading some of those papers. And you mentioned the website. I'm pretty sure I visited that. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
it's good to know. Thanks. Yeah, this is. I'm busy seeing all the vendor hype of what's possible and dare to dream, and mm-hmm. knowing that there's people out there actually working on it, even in an academic context. That's great because that's going to flow into enterprise and production context soon enough. So at least you're some lens of sanity through the marketing. Thanks. I take that as a compliment. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And you also answered my usual wrap-up questions like, where can people find you and where can people learn more about this? And I have to tell you that I'm really pleased to hear that Eteha, because it's really pronounced Eteha, right? True, true. Yeah. Is home to another exciting language, because don't forget that Eteha was the home of Niklas Wirt, the guy who invented Pascal. Yeah, that's true. Yes. I'm in Hamburg there. I think it's still very small compared to this kind of contribution, but it's, it's a great place. I would advise also the more young people in the audience to, so, or, or anybody actually to check it out and see, uh, the kind of cool thing we do here. Yeah. And by the way, Zurich is a great city and ETH has an awesome graduate and postgraduate program. So just register. Exactly. Yes. Every year, the registration is open to anybody, right? It's highly recommend anybody to apply. Yes. We accept people at the, at the bachelor degree, master degree, also postgraduate degree. So really, there is something for everybody. Yeah, please apply for sure. So now the last questions, Nick and Chris, where can people find you? Oh, I don't know. I'm all over the internet. Just search for my name. I have a Twitter account at Braulio and a four and a I'm sorry, at forwarding plane. I changed it. And then also I blog at forwardingplane.net. And at Netman Chris on Twitter, and that's probably the best place to start. And, you know, there's blogs, there's stuff. I'm all over, like Nick. And what did you automate this week, Chris? I automated turning the hair on my legs different colors by uh, steel brush and bleach on the ground to deal with my recent flood issue. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'm not going down that path. No more details. And I'm Ivan Pipelnyak. You've been listening to Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. And if you want to know more about what we're doing, just uh, drop by ipspace.net, explore our blog, the webinars, the online courses, or go to podcast.ipspace.net to download more episodes of this fantastic podcast. Thanks for being with us. See you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.